Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bowne, a Senior Fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we are going to talk about what is going on in Xinjiang, China. One concern for companies and, and policymakers is that there is forced labor in, in Xinjiang. The International Labor Organization defines forced labor as situations in which persons are coerced to work through the use of violence or intimidation, or by more subtle means, such as accumulated debt, retention of identity papers, or threats of denunciation to immigration authorities. We're going to be joined by a very special guest. I'm Amy Lair. I'm the director of the Human Rights Initiative at CSIS and a senior fellow there. We started off by asking Amy about what is going on in Xinjiang. The situation in Xinjiang is one of the gravest human rights crises in the world. The U.S. Holocaust Museum has said that it is a potential crime against humanity, and other experts have agreed. And so what we see there, and what I focused on, is a pattern of forced labor. But the forced labor is part of a much larger system of abuses. More than a million Muslim ethnic minorities have been placed in detention facilities and now are being moved into jails or into workplaces against their will. But they're also being tortured and constantly surveilled and allegedly subjected to forced sterilization and other measures that are of grave concern to the world community. So how do we know this? What what sources are you using to kind of inform what we learn about what's going on there? Conducting robust research on Xinjiang is really challenging because access of foreigners and even most Han Chinese to the region has been cut off. We've been able to interview some people who were in these detention facilities and who were forced to work. So that's helped us understand what's happening. And it's basically corroborated what we were able to learn through desktop research. It actually turns out that the government and some of these companies that are involved talk about what they're doing on their own websites. And so we're able to see what the planning is, the volumes of people potentially involved, and some of the practices that are in place. Can you walk us through maybe some of the different kinds of of forced labor um, that we think are taking place in in this context here? Forced labor in Xinjiang is evolving from a number of different incentive structures and government programs. So first we see people who have been detained being told, you know, if they would like to get out of a detention facility, they should go work in a particular factory or they'll be sent back. In some cases, they're also working while they're still detained. So there are factories that are attached to detention facilities or very close to them. The second category is as part of what's called poverty alleviation. So this is a large government program. It's a priority of Xi Jinping to try to bring ethnic minorities out of poverty, which on its face sounds like a really good idea. The challenge is that a lot of local government officials in Xinjiang have been given quotas where they're required to move X number of people to work. And by that, they mean, quote unquote, modern work in factories. And so people are being sort of swept up and taken away from their families, moved and forced to work. So that's the second big tranche. And then there's concern that the problem of of forced prison labor, which has long been a problem in Xinjiang, is increasingly affecting ethnic Muslim minorities like the Uyghurs, who are being arrested in unprecedented numbers for uh, extreme thought. 
Could you tell us a bit more about the government programs that are feeding into this system? So what are the formal programs? A number of government programs feed into this. The Poverty Alleviation Program is this effort to bring the rural poor into the workplace with the idea that if you put people to work in a modern workforce like the rest of the Han Chinese population, it will cut their ties to their religion and culture and make them more loyal to the Chinese state. This is not intuitive to an American audience, but nevertheless, that is the thinking. The other program that's really important is the pairing program. So in this program, provinces in other parts of China are paired with particular regions of Xinjiang in an effort to develop them economically. This can lead to a number of different actions. So the companies in those provinces, particularly the leading companies, are asked to participate and The companies are asked to build industrial zones in Xinjiang. They're asked to receive workers through government programs, either in Xinjiang at the factories that they've been asked to build there, in addition to the industrial zones, or at their factories in other parts of China. And that's where the link to forced labor comes into the pairing program. And so any company that's involved in pairing, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're involved in forced labor, but it should be a red flag that you really need to look harder. So Amy, tell us a little bit more about the the underlying motivation for, for why the Chinese government is doing all of this. From talking to a lot of Chinese scholars, the, the overall consensus is that the Chinese government is really concerned about security issues. And particularly after the Arab Spring, you know, there had been a little bit of unrest in Xinjiang and, and of course they're Muslim. And after the Arab Spring, the Chinese government became very, very concerned about stability and security in the region. Uh, Xinjiang also is a key linchpin in the Belt and Road Initiative as the Belt and Road Initiative moves into Central Asia and eventually into Europe, in theory. Uh, You have to have Xinjiang. It's it's where everything goes through there. But basically, it's a concern about security. And obviously, (laughs) from an international human rights perspective, or from the perspective of most people and most countries, the response to what was a pretty minor security threat is completely disproportionate. But nevertheless, that's really what appears to be driving these policies that seem so extreme to the rest of us. And that's also why it's going to be hard to convince China to change its course. Is there anything to this this idea that there is widespread poverty there and you know it does need to be alleviated? It's true that Xinjiang is a relatively poor province. A lot of the people who are being put into these poverty alleviation programs are smallholder farmers or herders. And frankly, there's been an effort at poverty alleviation, although not in this extreme and um, coercive form, for a long time. And what's been found is that basically people in Xinjiang, the, the Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities there, don't want to go leave their towns and work in a factory. And so, yes, there are options to to improve the situation of people there for sure. And they face massive discrimination when they do try to get jobs. But to force them into jobs is clearly not the way forward. Okay, how about numbers? Can you give us a sense for maybe how widespread um, these practices are and how big a problem this, this is? The government of Kashgar stated in 2018 that it would send 100,000 ex-detainees who had gone through quote-unquote vocational training, 
which is often a term used to refer to time in a detention facility. It would send these 100,000 ex-detainees to work in factories. That's 20% of the entire Uyghur population of Kashgar. Not just 20% of the Uyghurs who are already in detention. And you have to understand that Kashgar is a relatively heavily populated part of Xinjiang. So there's a lot of people. It's a huge chunk of this ethnic minority population. So right now, I think I'm right in saying that uh, the split between Han Chinese and the ethnic and religious minorities is something like 50-50 in Xinjiang. Um, so that means that a big chunk of the Uyghur population is a big chunk of the, the Xinjiang population. So let's talk about the, the economic footprint of these potential human rights violations. What's actually made in Xinjiang? When you think about what Xinjiang produces, first, I would just say I wouldn't focus first on its direct exports because most of what Xinjiang produces is actually consumed within the rest of China. However, I can tell you what's, what Xinjiang's top exported goods were in 2019. So we included this in a recent report we put out in July on this very topic. The top exported product was apparel, which is probably no surprise to anyone because that's what's been getting a lot of the airtime followed by footwear, but Xinjiang also produces electric electric machinery and equipment and other machines, which I believe to be mechanical appliances and things like potentially like phones. They also produce some toys, plastics, some vehicles. So they produce a range of goods. But again, if you look at China's total exports, what's coming straight out of Xinjiang to other countries is very, very small. I would note that To my surprise, frankly, Xinjiang's largest growing export market is actually the U.S. The dollar value of the exports from Xinjiang to the U.S. increased by 250% in the last year. So if you had to allocate the forced labor by, like, number of people, where would most of them be working? So when we think about forced labor in Xinjiang, we think about a number of different factors. One of those is just where do you tend to find forced labor, not just in Xinjiang, but globally? Generally, when when you think about forced labor, the population that's doing the work is not highly skilled, or at least they might be. In the Xinjiang case, they might be former professors who've been put through detention, but they probably don't know how to sew something or make something. And so generally, you would look to sectors that involve lower skill work. The other factor I think about with Xinjiang is that generally the government would like to see people in factories. However, one thing we don't know is, I mean, these these government officials are facing quotas of people they're supposed to put into work and whether sometimes maybe they stick them in other kind of jobs because frankly, that's what's available. So I would say looking at factory work that's low skill Even when you look, though, at a sector that is generally higher tech, there may be pieces of it that are lower tech. So, for example, making a cell phone often requires quite a lot of skill. But we've seen cell phone cases being made in Xinjiang, or there might be certain components that could be made there. In your report, um, you focused on the area of cotton and textiles and apparel. Why is that? Uh, For a number of reasons. First, it was the first sector to get a lot of attention. But also because Xinjiang plays a really important role in that sector. In figures that have been pretty commonly shared, China is one of the world's largest cotton producers. 
And Xinjiang produces the vast majority of China's cotton. So Xinjiang is producing something like 20% of the world's cotton. Going through the supply chain for, say, you know, a cotton T-shirt, what do we know about the involvement of forced labor at each stage? We know something about the the risk, at least, of forced labor at each stage. So then, again, without access on the ground, it's hard to be super confident about prevalence rates or anything like that. So historically, in the cotton sector in Xinjiang, there was a history of using prison labor, uh, the XPCC, a paramilitary organization operating in Xinjiang and that controls large swaths of it, would use prison labor to dig out the cotton fields, irrigate them, harvest them, etc. They'd also have ethnic minorities come and harvest periodically, and that was not by choice. Those practices have probably at least diminished, partly because a larger percentage of the cotton fields in Xinjiang are now automatically harvested. Uh, rather than hand harvested. But there's still actually, we were surprised by the percent that's still hand harvested. So there's still definitely a risk there. And cotton harvesting has been used for forced labor all over the world for a long time because no one really wants to do it. And it's very labor intensive. So you need the sudden influx of labor, um, which lends itself again to these forced labor practices. The next stage, ginning, also actually revol- involves quite intense labor that's very seasonal. You gin when the cotton has just been harvested. There is a risk of forced labor there as well. And a lot of the gins in Xinjiang are owned by this paramilitary organization, the XPCC. So there's certainly a risk there. We don't know how extensive the use of forced labor there actually is. After that, you're at the spinning level or yarn making. Yarn making is increasingly highly automated, but there's still people who work there who are not highly skilled. And so there's some risk there. And there have been a number of allegations about yarn makers in the Xinjiang region um, and about their links to forced labor. When you look at textile making, again, that tends to have a lot of highly sophisticated machinery. But there are people doing some work that is not highly sophisticated and skilled, and so you'd have a risk there as well. And then when you get to cut and sew, there's a significant risk. Uh, Cut and sew is typically not highly skilled. It is a sector that has always had problems with forced labor, and so that's definitely a concern. And there have been specific allegations about forced labor at the cut and sew level and to some degree at the textile level in Xinjiang. I'd like to, to pivot right now to talk about policy. So suppose you're a company and and you are either worried about reputational risk or, you know, you just want to do the right thing. How easy is it to make sure that you're not using forced labor uh, if, if you're also sourcing from Xinjiang and China? The situation in Xinjiang is a nightmare for companies that want to know that their products are produced responsibly. That's because normally companies would send in auditors who are trained in social auditing, which means they not only review, let's say, timesheets and things for a factory, pay scales, et cetera, and pay slips, but they talk to workers. That's a really key part of these uh, audits if they're done properly. And of course, in Xinjiang right now, there's this overall really intense surveillance infrastructure, and you have an entire population that's basically being intimidated. And then, of course, some of them are actually living in detention facilities and working or living in guarded dormitories and working. And so the idea that you're going to be able to elicit responses that you think are free and open is just not realistic. And so the really the problem with Xinjiang is obviously 
there are plenty of people working in Xinjiang who are not in conditions of forced labor. But how you know, there's just no way to be confident at this point in time, which is why it's so vital that the region get opened up to the outside. What are companies doing to, to try to avoid this risk? Some companies have shown a lot of concern about what's happening in Xinjiang. I'd actually say that the apparel and textile sector has been on the alert the longest, so they've probably done the most. And a lot of them are just pulling their supply chains out of Xinjiang to the extent that they know that their supply chains touch on Xinjiang. The challenge there, of course, is that companies very rarely have full traceability in their supply chains. And so companies have cut off their first-tier relationships with Xinjiang, often their second-tier relationships with Xinjiang. Just using apparel and textiles as an example, very few companies can, can get down, let's say, to the yarn level. And so they don't know where their stuff is coming from. So they're taking the steps they know how to take right now and sort of digging into their supply chains to see what else they can do. Are they getting any pushback from their Chinese suppliers? It's very hard right now for, for non-Chinese companies to talk about Xinjiang and their concerns within the China context. If you are someone living in China, the information that you're receiving is that, you know, the Chinese government is just trying to help these minorities. And so... And not only that, but that all the concerns about Xinjiang are just an American plot to undermine China's role in the world. And so, yes, if companies go to their suppliers and express concern, they actually get caught up in all these geopolitics. It doesn't mean that companies aren't doing it, and they need to, right? If a company has a commitment to human rights or just being a decent company, they have to do this. But it is true that it is very challenging in a way that I've never seen before. And I've been working on these sorts of issues for my whole career. So what are foreign governments and, you know, the United States doing about this? Governments are definitely increasingly beginning to make public statements about the situation or take some kind of steps. The U.S. has definitely been out in front. The U.S. has sanctioned a number of entities related to their involvement in human rights abuses in Xinjiang or their involvement in forced labor there. They've put a number of technology companies on what's called the entities list, which limits the ability of U.S. companies to export to the companies on the entities list. So those are companies involved in things like facial recognition and artificial intelligence, which are being used for surveillance in the region. The Congress has passed some legislation related to the situation in Xinjiang, and there are some really aggressive legislation that was just passed almost unanimously by the House of Representatives that would basically name the entire region as being affected by forced labor. U.S. law provides for the seizure of goods produced with forced labor if they're exported to the U.S. And so anything from the region, even if it was just an input into a product, could be seized. In the meantime, the Customs and Border Protection have issued a series of what are called WROs or withhold release orders, where they've detained shipments um, from Xinjiang that are suspected of having been produced with forced labor. So there's a lot of action on the U.S. side. I would say other countries have not done a lot. I think a lot of them are, they know that, you know, to the extent countries have spoken out, they have faced really aggressive retribution from China and so they have been really slow to act on this particular issue, despite its scale and severity. My understanding of the way that these 
enforcement actions work is is that the U.S. customs authorities can stop a shipment from entering the U.S., but then that shipment can just go somewhere else. Um, and I, I suppose that the question that invites is, is how effective these measures can really be if they're only done unilaterally without other countries. So really, do you need other countries saying, no, you you can't ship that stuff here either? The U.S. has taken a number of actions on Xinjiang, but it really can't accomplish its policy objectives alone. The problem's too big. China's policy positions and goals are too entrenched. And when you think about global supply chains, the U.S. is obviously a really, really important economy, but it's not enough on its own, partly because China's internal market is massive. So when we look at, again, the example of apparel and textiles, 88% of China's apparel and textiles that it produces are actually consumed within China. And so you're trying to affect the calculus of China through things like import bans, but it's actually, you're only, you only have a small percentage of their production to actually try to affect, if that makes sense. And so it's quite challenging. And if you want to use both economic and diplomatic measures to have an impact, it's going to be really important that Europe gets on board, Canada, Australia. I mean, ideally, also some of the Muslim-majority world, although so far that hasn't looked very promising. But this is too big a problem for even the U.S. to address it on its own. So with these these import bans and these actions the U.S. government is, is taking, is there a risk that they might be too broad, that they might actually catch up things that aren't being um, produced with forced labor? Right now, the U.S. is issuing individual withhold release orders on particular shipments regarding particular companies. And so they're issuing those because they've had information brought to them or they've identified it that indicates that those shipments are actually affected by forced labor. If you had an assumption made by the regulatory authorities or by Congress that all the products from Xinjiang were affected by forced labor, then yes, you would potentially capture and seize goods that might not have been produced with forced labor. I think what the proponents of those approaches would say is that there's no way to know, we know there's a significant problem there, and there's no way to know that those products were not produced with forced labor. And frankly, it's a problem that China could fix quite easily by starting to let people back in the region and letting up on its surveillance uh, practices a bit. Suppose everyone did coordinate and manage to, to cut Xinjiang out of their supply chains. Do you think consumers would notice? China provides something like one-third of, the, let's just pick again apparel and textiles, one-third of the U.S.'s apparel and textiles. So if suddenly... Most of those apparel and textiles came under severe scrutiny and were at least theoretically able to be seized. Yeah, that could have an impact. I mean, a significant impact on the sector. And if companies took it really seriously and, and started dramatically cutting off their ties with China and maybe having to move to jurisdictions where prices were higher, it could have some effect on consumer pricing. I would just say, I would hope that consumers would be willing to pay five cents more for something rather than having it be affected by forced labor, especially the kind that we see in Xinjiang, which is state-sponsored and tied into broader crimes against humanity. So at this point, I'd, I'd like to ask, what do you think governments should be doing that they're not already doing, you know, beyond coordinating in, in some vague way? When it comes to Xinjiang, again, because the Chinese government is really entrenched in its policy approach there. 
it's hard to say like what one thing needs to be done by companies or governments, because really a lot of things need to be done if you want to have, first, any impact on what's happening there, and second, if you want to really clean up your supply chain. In terms of governments, I think the most important thing is actually having governments besides the U.S. take some meaningful steps. It just hasn't really happened. So there's talk of some other governments using um, sanctions against entities there that are involved in abuses. Those could include uh, entities involved in forced labor as well as a broader set of issues. I think that would be important to start seeing more of more networked sanctions that, that reinforce each other. There are some countries that have laws that potentially could be used uh, to address forced labor and supply chains, although the U.S. is is the strongest that I'm aware of. So again, what tools are already there is a little unclear. I think diplomatic channels are important too. So having, for the U.S. and other countries, having this topic be part of every conversation with China. You know, when the U.S. has trade talks, this should be part of it. It hasn't been, but it should be. That's how we approached the Soviet Union at the end of the Cold War, under the Reagan administration, actually. Every high-level talk of the Soviet Union had several pillars, and one of them was human rights. And it should be the same approach here. In terms of what companies should do, so first of all, I think it's important that a broader range of sectors realize that they're at risk. It's not just textiles and apparel. St. John produces a number of other important goods that are precursors for for, for supply chains. And so they need to be conducting some minimal due diligence. Which sectors beyond apparel um, really need to, to, to wake up to this risk that forced labor is, is potentially being used in their supply chains? So we looked at the pairing programs to try to get a sense of what sectors are more likely to have issues with forced labor. So we found that agriculture and textiles are really common priorities of the pairing programs, but that also um, electronics are part of are, are part of pairing, um, chemicals, mining, rare earths. There's a whole range of sectors that are potentially implicated, and so really the broad spectrum of companies need to be looking at this. Financial companies and Pension funds also need to be understanding how they're linked to the situation there. And I think they have a lot of work to do. For companies that are linked potentially through their supply chains, it does mean um, digging in, and that's hard work. Uh, But I think, you know, in general, that's what consumers increasingly expect. And so I see Xinjiang as potentially a catalyst for greater company efforts at traceability and understanding the conditions in their supply chains. I would just say also that in terms of like companies need to understand the entities in their supply chains, but then they can also look and there are consultancies now providing these kind of services. You know, are those companies part of the pairing program? Have they been involved in poverty alleviation? Are there any of these, you know, if you look at their annual report, does it talk about subsidies for training in Xinjiang? They need to start looking for those red flags as well. Um, And that would help them identify both forced labor risk and other human rights risk within Xinjiang, and then potentially also where there might be these kind of labor transfers to factories in other parts of China. So in the United States, we don't have a a great history ourselves when it comes to race uh, and, and you know, treatment of minorities, both economically, but then as you, you look at, say, the prison population that's disproportionately represented by, by minorities. How challenging is it for the United States to, you know, take a leadership role on these human rights issues, given its own history and problems? 
the U.S., like every other country, doesn't have a perfect track record. But I also think false equivalence is problematic. The U.S. definitely has a race problem. There's no doubt, and we're seeing it every day. Um, but we also have a democratic process through which we can talk about that and work on that and have dialogue and progress. I don't think that equating that with putting a million people without any kind of trial or process into detention and then making them work, I just don't think that they're equivalent. However, I would agree that the fact that the U.S. is facing internal challenges on human rights and also in terms of how we're engaging internationally on human rights is not as strong as it sometimes has been, that does make it harder for the U.S. to lead on this issue. So just to build on that, um, and then this is my last question before we we wrap up. Do you think that the U.S.-China geopolitical rivalry is also making this harder? The fact that the U.S.-China relationship has become so highly politicized has made it harder than normal for the U.S. to lead on this issue. And it's why I do think it's so important for other countries to really engage on it. Um, There is a perception, which I don't think is, well, it may be partly correct, partly incorrect, but that the U.S. concern about the human rights situation in China is being driven by larger geopolitical dynamics. I think the concern is genuine in many cases, um, but nevertheless, that perception is problematic. Amy, thank you very much. Sure, it's my pleasure. And that is all from Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Amy Lair of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Do check out her report, Addressing Forced Labor in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region Toward a Shared Agenda. And we will, of course, link to it on the episode page of our website. That is www.tradetalkspodcast.com. Thanks to Colin Warren at Audio Guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks.